Inequality is one of the biggest issues that has divided economists for as long as economics has been studied, and probably a good amount of time before that as well. One of the central questions that economists are constantly trying to answer is to whom the fundamentally limited resources of an economy should be provided to. There are no correct answers to this question, but there are some that are obviously wrong. I think most of you watching would agree that the wealth of an economy should not be hoarded by authoritarian rulers that don't answer in any way to their people. On the opposite end of this argument, the accumulation of resources is one of the primary motivators for people to work harder, innovate and prescribe capital efficiently. These actions by economic participants add value to the entire economic system, but they are also difficult, risky, time-consuming and not very fun. So not rewarding these actions with a larger share of resources will mean that they are not done, which will result in an economic system that is worse off overall for everybody. We've spent a lot of time on this channel talking about some of the most unequal countries in the world and the economic problems that are caused by this inequality. If a majority of people in an economy are too poor to afford proper education, nutrition and healthcare, on top of these being terrible social issues, it's actually bad for the economy overall, even the wealthy elite of that economy with a very large share of the wealth, because poorly educated, sickly and undernourished economic participants make for a very bad labour force. If workers can't perform at their best, then there will be less wealth generated overall, which means even if the 1% of the 1% own a huge portion of the economic pie, the pie will be smaller overall, leaving them worse off in absolute terms than if they were to share that wealth more equitably. So even if they didn't care about their country being plagued by poverty, there is still an argument that some level of equality is in their best interest. So instead of learning from the mistakes of economies that have got this balance wrong, it's perhaps more insightful to look at the most equal country in the world to work out what they are doing right. So how do economists work out what the most equal country in the world is? What tools do these countries employ to manage that equality? And finally, are there any economic drawbacks caused by this equality? There are lots of ways that economists measure inequality. The most popular is something called the Gini coefficient. The Gini coefficient works by plotting out something called a Lorenz curve. The Lorenz curve, named after the economist Max Otto Lorenz, is made by breaking the economy down into percentiles and then graphing out the cumulative share of resources that each percentile owns in that economy. If we are looking at income inequality, the lowest 1% of earners might only make a tenth of a percent of the total national income in the economy. The next 1% will make 0.2 of a percent, which adds together to make a running total of 0.3%, and so on until we get to the top 1% of earners, which might make 10% of the total national income in an economy. If we run a line through each of these percentiles, we get the Lorenz curve for that particular economy. We can then imagine an economy that is perfectly fair. The lowest 1% of earners makes 1% of the income, the lowest 2% also makes 1%, and the top 1% of earners, if you can call them that, still only makes 1% of the income. If we follow the cumulative total of these data points, we make a 45 degree line. No economy in the real world is ever going to look like this because there will always be some level of income inequality, but if we lay out the Lorenz curve from that real economy over this perfectly equal hypothetical, the graph will have two areas on it. The area above the Lorenz curve and the area below the Lorenz curve. The Gini coefficient is simply calculated by looking at the percentage of the area that is above the Lorenz curve. So in this economy, let's say roughly 40% is above the line and 60% is below the line. That would give the economy a Gini coefficient of 0.4, which is pretty good by global standards. If, for example, nobody made any money at all in this economy other than the top 1%, then the curve wouldn't really be a curve at all, it would be a 90 degree angle at the end of the chart. Which means that the area above this line angle thing is 100% of the area, with nothing existing below it. This would be a Gini coefficient of 1, which is perfect inequality. 
If we had that perfectly equal economy from earlier, it would match the 45 degree line exactly, meaning that 0% of the area would be above the line and 100% of the area would be below the line. This would give the economy a Gini coefficient of 0. Now I know I've just thrown a lot of graphs and numbers at you, so if you don't completely understand it, don't worry. All you really need to know, and all that most professional macroeconomists know for that matter, is that the closer to zero a Gini coefficient score is, the more equal the country. In the real world, all economies are going to exist somewhere between these two extremes, but the most equal country in the world would simply be the one with the lowest Gini number. And we know exactly which one that is. It's Iceland, with an income Gini coefficient of 0.369 according to the 2022 OECD report. So there we go, video done. Well done to the People's Republic of Iceland. Except of course, it's not that simple. There is a lot of interesting economics behind what makes Iceland so equal, and the first is that they just don't have that many people. Iceland only has a population of 370,000, which is smaller than most medium towns. Two thirds of the entire country's population could fit in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. A small population by itself doesn't mean that there can't be inequality. Any population of two or more will have some level of inequality if we chart it out on our Lorenz curve, but Iceland's low population helps it in other ways. Iceland is a country rich in geothermal energy, which means electricity there is extremely cheap, which makes energy intensive industries like aluminium smelting and even cryptocurrency mining very globally competitive. The country also has a surprisingly strong financial services sector, which is part of the reason that it got into so much trouble in the GFC. It's also a major commercial fishing hub, and I know fishing doesn't sound that glamorous or profitable, but Icelandic fishing is done on huge boats employing state-of-the-art equipment to make billions of dollars every year. On top of that, the country is beautiful, which is why, outside of global pandemics, the country had more tourists arriving every year than it had citizens. If we remember our factors of production, land, labour and capital, Iceland has very productive land, a good amount of capital, but only a tiny pool of labour, which means the workers that it does have are very valuable, and even average workers can demand very high salaries because employers just don't have that many options to choose from. Combine this with a very egalitarian culture and political system and it makes sense that Iceland would top the list for income inequality. But remember when I said it wasn't that simple? Well, it isn't that simple. Iceland's Gini coefficient of 0.369 is measured before taxes and transfers. What this means is that it only measures people's before tax incomes and excludes any money they might have received through government assistance programs. These are two of the three biggest ways that the government can control income inequality in their economies. We'll get to the third one soon, but for now see if you can guess it along the way. Typically taxes reduce the net income of higher income earners and government assistance increases the income of lower income earners. So high taxes and high levels of government assistance will make the economy more equal. Actually, almost any type of taxes and government assistance will usually improve income inequality, with the exception being government assistance programs that specifically help businesses. Even still, the Gini coefficient of all of the countries that the OECD monitors improved when including taxes and transfers. Some improve quite significantly, like Slovakia, which has a Gini coefficient of just 0.222 after taxes and transfers, which then makes it the most equal country in the world. Slovakia's Gini coefficient before these interventions is still good, only just falling behind Iceland at 0.383, which means it was fairly equal before taxes and welfare and it was even more equal after them. But Slovenia, the runner-up after tax equality, is a little bit more interesting. Slovenia before taxes had an income Gini coefficient of 0.444, which while certainly not terrible by global standards, leaves a very big gap between its coefficient of 0.246 after taxes and welfare. This just means that Slovenia has very high taxes, which it does, especially for individuals. Income taxes top out at 50%, which is high but isn't crazy by itself. 
There are countries like Finland that have a top marginal tax rate of 57%, but the difference is that Finnish residents need to earn a lot more before they start paying that. In Slovenia, people start paying 50% of their income on everything they earn over €72,000, which is an extremely low top marginal tax bracket. That goes on to fund generous welfare and retirement schemes, which is why the country has such low income inequality, which is great, but it can cause problems. The economist Arthur Laffer devised yet another curve to consider when it comes to national income equality. The Laffer curve is the theoretical relationship between total government revenue and the effective tax rate of the nation, and it charts this relationship out between the extremes of a 0% tax rate and a 100% tax rate. Government tax revenue at a 0% effective rate will obviously be zero, and then it will increase as the government increases the rate. That's pretty simple so far. But Laffer added that at a certain tax rate, any further increases will actually result in the government generating less tax revenue for the economy. The reason this happens is because if taxes get high enough, then people will have less incentive to work and a greater incentive to find ways to avoid taxes, either through legal loopholes or illegal dodging. People with high incomes and highly marketable skills will also start to move out of the country to other countries with lower tax rates where they can enjoy a higher quality of life. This not only results in lost revenue directly from those people who will no longer be paying taxes directly to the government, but it also hurts the economy in other ways by removing highly skilled workers from the labour force because they are the ones most likely to move to secure higher incomes with lower taxes elsewhere. The exact shape of the Laffer curve is highly debated and almost all countries exist on the left-hand side of the curve. But that doesn't mean that countries can just solve the issue of inequality through this kind of intervention without causing other economic problems. Income taxes and welfare payments also don't directly impact the arguably more important metric for inequality, and that is wealth inequality. Income inequality is the difference between the income of the lowest and highest earners in an economy, where wealth inequality is the difference between the net worth of the richest and poorest in an economy. We can still chart this out on a Lorenz curve and create Gini coefficients, but wealth inequality is almost always greater than income inequality because people on higher incomes will have more money left over after covering essentials to make investments. Those investments will start to make their own returns, which means that wealth can accumulate to a larger degree than incomes. For reference, Iceland has a wealth inequality Gini coefficient of 0.69, nice, whereas income inequality was only 0.37. Improving income inequality doesn't always improve wealth inequality like you might expect either, because a lot of the wealthiest people in an economy don't make their fortunes through earned income. Their wealth comes from their assets accumulating in value. In certain conditions, improving income inequality can actually worsen wealth inequality, because as the lowest earning people in an economy earn more money, they will spend more at businesses or maybe even invest into those businesses. Either way, this will increase the value of those businesses, which disproportionately benefits the people that already own them, as in very wealthy people. If you want to see this counterintuitive process of improved income inequality resulting in worse wealth inequality, then just look at the global economy between 2020 and 2022. Generous stimulus measures made with the best intentions to help struggling households through an unprecedented economic shakeup leveled the income playing field a bit. But it made people who were already very wealthy even wealthier because most of this money was channeled into companies that they already owned, either through investments or product purchases. How many people do you know that either bought Tesla shares or an actual Tesla car? All other things being equal, however, over the long term, more equal incomes should result in a more equal wealth distribution. So then, what country is the most equal by wealth inequality metrics? Again, this is a very simple question that you can find out by just looking at a list of countries by wealth inequality Gini coefficient figures. The answer is either Slovakia, again, Belgium, Myanmar, or East Timor. Yeah, these ones get a little bit harder to explain. 
Using the Gini coefficient is still possible to measure wealth inequality, but there are some reasons that the results that we get might not be as easy to compare country to country as income inequality figures. For starters, the data is just not as easy to collect. Almost every major economy in the world taxes income in one form or another, and if you tax income, you need to track income. So figuring out how much people earn is as simple as using tax agency databases. Only a tiny handful of countries have wealth taxes, so most governments don't even bother tracking this. The list we are working off for this video is made of composite data from four different sources that all use slightly different methodologies and data collection techniques. Wealth is also much more subjective. It's difficult for people to agree on how much a house or a car might be worth at any given time, but those assets will still make up a significant portion of a significant number of people's total wealth. Wealth can also go into the negatives as people take on debt, but most economists would agree that even though someone with a negative $50,000 net worth because they have $10,000 in cash and $60,000 in student loans might technically fall into the bottom 1% of people by net wealth, they are probably better off than someone with only $5 in their pocket. The person with only $5 might technically be $50,000 wealthier, but their earning potential and quality of life will be much lower. Countries like Myanmar and East Timor achieve their level of wealth inequality partly because it's very difficult for people in these countries to go into debt because they just aren't financial institutions set up there to serve them. Wealth inequality also gets a bit difficult towards the top end with extremely wealthy people that can skew results for entire countries. If a group has one billionaire and 999 people that are flat broke, then the average person in that group is a millionaire. In the same way, just a few extremely wealthy people can distort the Lorenz curve enough to make a very egalitarian economy look like an oligopoly. According to the best available Gini coefficient statistics, the Netherlands, Sweden and Denmark all technically have a higher level of wealth inequality than Saudi Arabia and South Africa, but any reasonable person would obviously much rather be working class in Sweden than South Africa. This also highlights another problem with wealth inequality, which is that it's not necessarily a problem unless it's making people poorer. As the world has become richer, it has also become more unequal because the capacity for extreme wealth generation has grown with it. I would rather live in an economy where the average person is worth $100,000 but there are a few billionaires than an economy where everybody is equally worth $10,000. That might sound like a facile argument because the first economy just has more wealth overall, but the development of industry and innovation in the modern world was largely pushed by the profit motive. All of this is to say that wealth inequality is really, really difficult for economists to measure, and that makes it really difficult to work with. The popular solution of just limiting the wealth of the extremely rich doesn't necessarily improve living standards for average people, unless their wealth has been generated by actively stealing from regular people through corruption. In certain circumstances, it can actually hurt the overall wealth of an economy because it removes the incentive for already wealthy people to reinvest their capital into risky endeavours because there is no potential upside. But I didn't promise you a list of all of the challenges that economists face when working out inequality in economy. I promised you the most equal country in the world. And that's probably Australia. So this is a weird one because Australia does alright in income genie figures, but not amazingly when compared to Eastern European or Scandinavian countries. It is also middle of the road by wealth inequality figures, but it wins out in arguably the most important inequality metric, which is if you had to be a working class person in any country on earth, where would you want to be? Now, obviously, maybe I'm biased, but I would argue you would probably want it to be Australia. To begin with, the average Australian is very wealthy, trading back and forth with Switzerland to be the wealthiest people in the world, so that helps. The country does have a lot of wealthy people, with 11.2% of the population being millionaires, but even the average Australian does very well by global standards. 
The median Australian, as in half of the population is richer than them and half of the population is poorer than them, is worth $238,000. The share of wealth owned by the bottom 80% of the country is 27%, which might not sound amazing, but it's only 15% in the USA. Obviously, Australia has a lot of advantages. It's a globally desirable location for investment, it has a large mining industry and a relatively small population, which as we learnt earlier, does help with these sorts of things. But it also has policies in place that both look after the average person while not stifling entrepreneurship. Remember when I said that there were three ways that governments could control inequality? Taxation, welfare and one other. Well, that other control is policies around minimum wages. Congratulations to anybody that guessed it along the way. Australia consistently has the highest minimum wage rate of any country in the world, and on top of that, employers are required to make mandatory payments into their employees' retirement funds, regardless of their working arrangements. Those forced retirement savings are part of the reason that the average Australian is so rich. Australians can't access this money until they are 60 years old, and it turns out being forced to save 10% of your paycheck for life builds up surprisingly fast, especially with wages that are world-leading. This combined with a very low unemployment rate means that the average working Australian can build a very comfortable life for themselves in some of the most livable areas in the world. There are of course still problems, housing affordability in major cities being chief among them, but having a wealthy population that is surprisingly concentrated in just a few small areas of a massive country will do that. If you don't agree with me, then that's great, because it proves just how difficult the debate about inequality can be, when we can't even agree on what country is getting inequality right, and there is a compelling argument that at least a dozen countries could be the most equal on Earth. I don't want to get too philosophical here, but economics is a social science, and that often means that good economists need to look beyond statistical numbers when trying to work out optimal outcomes. It's no good making an economy the most equal in the world if everybody is equally miserable. Thanks for watching, mate. Bye.